Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman. A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N podsurvey.com slash art of man. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, throughout human history, the nighttime sky has been a source of inspiration for art, literature, philosophy, and religion. But if you're like most people living in cities or suburbs, or even rural parts of the country, you've likely never encountered a truly dark night. Thanks to electric lighting, the nighttime can be as bright as day, and while it's allowed us to function well into the midnight hour, electric lighting has deprived us of many of the spiritual and physical benefits that only come out in the dark. My guest today has written a book where he explores the decline of darkness in our modern age. His name is Paul Bogard, and his book is The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. And today on the show, Paul and I discuss what true darkness actually looks like and the type of undark night that most modern folks experience. He then shares where the last few spots in America and Europe where you can still experience true darkness and what the night sky in those places looks like. We then delve into what we miss out spiritually by not experiencing true darkness, as well as the health detriments that come with being exposed to artificial light 24 hours a day. Paul also shares some of the common myths about darkness, such as the idea that darkness is more dangerous than light. This show is going to inspire you to seek out a remote area of wilderness so you experience the beauty that comes with a truly dark night. After the show's over, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash Bogard. Paul Bogard, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So you wrote a book called The End of Night, and it's all about how nighttime has pretty much ended for most of human civilization. I'm curious, what led you down the path to start exploring the end of night and why darkness has these benefits that we often overlook? Well, I guess I think of myself as lucky. I grew up in Minneapolis, but the year I was born, my grandparents and parents built a cabin in the northern part of the state where we call it up north here. So all my life, I've been going up north to this cabin on a lake and so I grew up with what I would describe as real night or real darkness. That's, you know, darkness without really any artificial light. And I used to still do actually take the canoe out into the middle of the lake and just kind of lie back under the stars and soak in the universe. So having that firsthand experience of a real night and real darkness, uh, especially as a kid and growing up, I took that with me into the rest of my life. And when I was looking for a subject to write about after college, I started thinking about nighttime and writing about it. And when I discovered the problem of light pollution, 
everything just kind of clicked. And all of a sudden I was writing about all the benefits of darkness and all the costs of, of light pollution. Why does darkness have a, such a bad rap? Because like, I mean, everyone's afraid of the dark. Like that's the thing you're supposed to be afraid of. We do everything we can to illuminate the dark. What's going on there? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I, I mean, I think a lot of you know this issue of, of light pollution comes down to our fear of the dark. And, you know, it's a fear of darkness that goes back pretty much as far as we go back, I think. And you see it in, in historical literature, nighttime and darkness as being the time of thieves and, and danger and that kind of thing. And then certainly... Our popular culture has uh, reinforced that, you know, so that's when attacks happen. That's when home invasions happen. That's when the bad guys come out, all that. And so I think if you asked most people kind of, you know, when does, when's the most dangerous time to be out or when does crime happen? People would say at night in the dark. And the surprising thing is that statistically, that's just not true. You know, I've, I've talked to police in a lot of different cities when I was writing the book, and they said, you know, everybody thinks that nighttime is, is the dangerous time, but, you know, daylight is when houses are being robbed and, and, you know, people are being attacked by people they know inside their house. You know, it's very, it's relatively rare to be attacked outside. So we have all these preconceived notions about that darkness is dangerous and to go off that, then that light is safety and that more light is more safety. And, you know, it's important to say that some light can certainly help us be safe outside, help us see our way. But the, the, the challenge is that we just think that more, ever more light will make us ever safer. So we keep pumping out more and more light. Yeah, I thought that the chapter on sort of the myths of darkness being unsafe, because like, that's what you hear, right? Whenever like for home security, mm -hmm. like you got to have outdoor lighting, have a well-lit house because bad guys like to do things when they can't be seen. But you make the point, and I think a police officer made the point, like, well, bad guys also like to see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I heard that again and again when I was researching the book that, you know, I heard people say uh, bad guys are just as afraid of the dark as we are. And they, you know, uh, they like to be, as you said, they'd like to be able to sort their tools in the light. They like to see what's going on. And you see it on, you know, remarkably, if you go to, uh, say, a website of a police department, your local police department, you're bound to see a message that reads something like, you know, make your house safe at night, light it up, light up your yard. So even the police are kind of following behind this questionable notion that, you know, light makes us safe and darkness is dangerous. Yeah. And then, I mean, you also to point out like too much light can be dangerous, particularly on roads and highways where just we flood the streets with light and it actually creates this glare that makes it harder to see and can increase the chances of accidents. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, I think especially if you think of, you know, as you get older, your eyes change, it, it becomes more difficult to drive at night, in some part because of what's happening physically to your eye. But then we have all this glaring light shining into our eyes as well. And I think, you know, when I give talks and when I give readings and that kind of thing, I sometimes apologize to people because I say, you know, once you, once I've talked and shown you some of these things, you're going to go out into the night and start seeing this everywhere. And one of the things you see is glary light, you know, light that's allowed to just, you know, we're kind of shooting it all over the place and including straight into our eyes, which makes it harder to see, which makes it more dangerous at night. And let's have light, but let's have light just going down where we need it and not shining into our eyes or alternately into our bedrooms, into our houses, that kind of thing. 
Right. And going back to the bad guy, you had some pictures in there of houses that were just, you know, had lots of light, but you couldn't see the person because there was no contrast or they were wearing all white and you couldn't tell that they were there. Yeah, it's really remarkable. There's a great friend of mine sent me this uh, two images and and they're in the book of of the same scene of a yard in Tucson. And in the first scene, you just kind of you see this this yard with a bright light. And then the second scene, he's put up his hand to shield the light so that you have the light just going down and nowhere else. And then you can see the bad guy who was, you know, standing behind the in the shadow all the time. But because the light was so bright, you couldn't see them. You're, you know, bright lights make our pupils shut down. So it makes it, you know, we see, makes it harder for us to see. And bright lights cast shadows where the bad guys can hide. And I think even maybe the biggest issue in, that we're talking about here, too, is that bright lights give us the illusion of safety. So we, we look out onto a street, we look out onto a, a college campus, and we see it all lit up, and we think, oh, it's safe. But you know, lights aren't going to make you safe. And if, if somebody's out there, they can hide easily. And yeah, lights don't make us safe. Lights don't make us safe. Later on, we'll talk more about how we can use light more smartly, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. But uh, let's talk about this idea of, of true darkness or real night. What is that? And what sort of darkness do most people experience who live in the cities and suburbs? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, if you ask somebody, does it get dark at night? <laughs> They're going to, you know, duh, like, of course it gets dark at night. But it honestly, it really, it doesn't get dark at night, not, at least not as dark as it used to. There's a, a couple different ways to think about this. One is something called the Bortle scale, which is a, a nine point scale starting at, starts at nine in our brightest places. So it's pretty much any, any city downtown and works its way down to a, a level one, which would be what we call natural or real darkness. So that is darkness as it was before the advent of electric lighting, essentially. And what's remarkable when you start thinking about it this way is to learn that most Americans live most of their lives in levels five and above. So this whole second half of the scale of darkness is something that most of us never even experience. We don't even know what it what it looks like. And it's getting harder and harder to know what it looks like. Certainly in the lower 48 states, there are very few places that you could honestly say are a level one darkness where there's no evidence of artificial light, either, you know, no, uh, no light off on the horizon or uh, no light even in the sky from or on you know from uh, from a distant town or something like that. So yeah, it gets dark and it gets darker in the countryside than it does in the city, but it doesn't get dark like it used to. And if you've you know if you've lived long enough uh, uh, as I have, I guess to to grow up with experiencing real night, real darkness, and now you're in the same place, you've seen the change. It, it's not as dark as it used to be. And so, I mean, where can people still experience darkness unaffected by human light here in the United States? Well, you know, the if you're, uh, this, this is the crazy thing, if, if you're east of the Great Plains, so the whole half of the eastern part of the country, technically there's no more natural darkness left. Uh, again, there certainly are dark places. People go stargazing, you know, um, some of the national parks, thinking of Acadia up in Maine or out on uh, the Outer Banks, uh, some places in West Virginia. There are places where you can experience you know, close to a real night, but to get back to that real 
natural darkness. You have to get out into the ocean off the coast, or if you're lucky, out into the western states. Sometimes you can get back to some southern Utah is a great place to go. The Oregon desert. There are places where you can you can get back to it, but for most of us, most of our nights we're not even close. And how does the night sky change when there's little or no light pollution? Because I think you know we look up at the stars and you're like, oh, there's some stars there. You can see the big constellations like the Big Dipper, Cassiopeia. But what happens, well, how does the sky change whenever you have absolutely no light interfering with your stargazing? Yeah, it's, a, it's an entirely different experience, really. I'll give you a good example, which is when I was working on The End of Night, I was living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, and working at Wake Forest. And I remember walking home one night, and I it was in the fall, and I looked kind of over into the eastern sky, and I saw, you know, the stars of Orion, which are great. The three stars in the belt and Betelgeuse and Rigel, these super bright stars. And, and you know, everybody, m- most of us know what Orion looks like. I couldn't really see any other stars, but I was, you know, psyched to see those stars. And then I learned soon after that that these stars in Orion are 98 or 99% brighter than any other stars in our sky. So essentially what I was what I was seeing were these super bright stars and i wasn't seeing 98 or 99 percent of the stars i could be seeing most of my students have never seen the milky way which is an awesome experience and when you do get into those experiences of sort of what i'm saying is real night or, or real darkness you can have the feeling of there are so many stars that you feel like you're falling into them. It's just this kind of disorienting, uh, dizzying experience. And the stars are rising out of the horizon on one side and falling off the edge of the earth on the other. And you, It's just this surreal, almost surreal experience. You'll start to have uh, a different – the sky actually – if you're in a dark enough place, actually looks more deep blue than it does black. So there's actually uh, enough light in the sky that it causes just a, an entirely different experience. And it's it's an experience that used to be completely common that all of us would have experienced if we had been alive, you know, 100, 150, 200 years ago. And now it's something that very few people ever experience. Right. And you, you talk about uh, Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night, that famous painting. And everyone's kind of like, what's going on there? Like, it's blue. It's not black. There's different colored stars. But you think that he's like tripping on something. But just the way you described <laughs> it, like that's probably what he saw. Like he saw a deep blue sky with different colored stars. Yeah, that's a great example. I often show that image in my presentations and I say, you know, Van Gogh has it, had his had his issues, but I think that uh you know, a lot of people look at that painting and they just think he was as you said tripping on something or a crazy man or something like that. Or as one museum guy described to me, Van Gogh was a werewolf of energy. You know, we just think he was this this uh unbelievable human being. And that may all be true, but he was also seeing a sky that we no longer see anymore. And we have evidence of that in his letters to his brother Theo, where he would write about the different colors of stars over Paris, which, you know, you go to Paris these days and you're lucky to see two dozen stars, let alone the colors of of the stars. So when I'm talking about that painting, sometimes I say, you know, the night sky has inspired artists for you know all of history um van gogh's the one of the best examples of that and just think about all the young van goghs out there right now who are not being inspired 
Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it seems like not being able to see the full solar system, what's out there, has probably really disconnected us from the cosmos or nature in a, in a weird spiritual way. I definitely think so. I mean, I like to say that, you know, we've taken what was once one of the most common human experiences, which is walking out the door at night and coming face to face with the universe. And we've made that one of the most rare of human experiences. And that that experience, that first-time experience of, of coming face-to-face with the universe has, as I said, inspired art, but it's also inspired religion, philosophy, spirituality, science, all these things, all these elements of what it means to be human. And there are a lot of costs to light pollution that have we can attach dollar signs to or talk about in terms of human health, environmental health. But then there are also these what are often sort of intangible costs. You know, what do we lose when we can't see a real night sky? It's hard to put a dollar sign on it, but that doesn't mean it's not incredibly valuable to who we are as a species. So what was life like before we had electric lights? I mean, did, I mean, right now, because of lights, we can just be out 24 seven and everything's fine. What happened? What was life like before that? Did people just stay in as soon as the, you know, as soon as the night came didn't leave their homes or were they out and about? What was life like? You know, everything that I found was that it was a mix. You have some stories of when night came, people went, this is, I'm thinking, especially in in, uh, Western Europe, people would, you know, go inside and kind of batten down the hatch, you know, as though uh, they were on a ship and a storm was approaching, you know, lock lock themselves inside, uh, kind of turn over the outside to the the bad guys, as it were. But then you also have stories and, and, and histories of, night being the time of freedom, you know, of when people who were in one way or the other in bondage during the day were then at night kind of allowed their freedom and they could go see their friends or they could be with their partner. My fiance was uh, in Rwanda last summer and she had these remarkable stories of towns that, you know, have either no electric light or electric light only for uh, part of the evening. And then the rest of the night is dark. And she said, you know, people would come out and see their friends and the streets were, you know, alive with, with neighbors and seeing themselves. And the night became this friendly, friendly time where people are out and about rather than this, what it is, I think too often, even in modern society, kind of a time when people are nervous and anxious and, and kind of going inside to hide. So Historically, they were both both things, but I think it's so hard for us to even imagine what it's like before electric light because we're so swamped in it that it's hard to think like, what would I do if I were in that situation? Right. You also talk about how people stayed in bed longer than we do. Like they'd go to bed pretty much when it got dark. And they'd lay there and sometimes they would wake up in the middle of the night. And now we think, oh, that's insomnia. This is, I got to go to the doctor, get some Ambien. But for them, that was just like a natural part of sleeping. You would have a first sleep and then you'd wake up, do some stuff and then have a second sleep and wake up in the morning. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable thing. Uh, this was discovered by a historian at Virginia Tech who wrote a book called At Day's Close, who discovered in the literature from Western Europe, this, what you just mentioned, the the idea of first sleep and second sleep. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, you know, if there's no electric light, if there's no electricity to do all the things that 
that we do when it gets dark out, folks would go to sleep and they would they would sleep for a while and then they would wake up at one or two or three in the morning and have this uh, this intermission, as it were, in their sleep. And he discovered stories of you know couples would uh, make love, they'd have you know conversations, uh, people would get up and go see their friends, people would pursue you know their their private hobbies, you know things that they don't they didn't get to do during the day. And then they would go back to sleep and sleep until the sun came up. So to extrapolate that forward to our time where we think of like waking up in the middle of the night is, you know, we freak out if we wake up because we're like, oh, my God, you know, you know, do I have insomnia? Is something wrong? And a number of the sleep docs that I talked with said, you know, this is a totally normal thing. What is pretty unnormal is this idea that we we go to we you know stay up into the night with our electric lights, go to bed at 11, get up at seven and sleep straight through. It's, it's not like that normally. Right. So let's talk about light pollution and its effect on the ecosystem. I mean, we call it pollution. We don't think of it as that. We think of pollution like a smog and stuff going into water, but light can harm our environment. So what ways has light pollution harmed uh, our ecosystems? You know, it's, it's, this is the issue that really brought me to writing The End of Night. It's the thing that matters to me most is our impact on ecosystems and our fellow creatures. And the surprising thing is we just don't know that much about it. It hasn't been studied that much. It's in the early stages. And yet, when you start to think about it, and another, a number of biologists told me this and talked to me about this, if we think about the fact that life on Earth evolved with bright days and dark nights, and you know we we generally we generally acknowledge that we need sunlight; it's really important. But they said, you know, we also need darkness. And then you think about how much light pollution there is. How much uh, and light pollution is the definition essentially is the overuse and misuse of artificial light. So it's just we're using way too much. We're kind of blasting it all around. And essentially what that does for nocturnal creatures and crepuscular creatures, those creatures that are active at dawn and dusk, is it ruins their habitat. And so they have evolved to depend on darkness for mating, for migration, for feeding, for all these different things. And then we come along and light up the light up the night. Uh, we essentially ruin that habitat. Yeah. So yeah. go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No. Well, I was just going to give you know a couple prime examples. In North America, for example, we have more than 400 species of birds that migrate at nights. People don't know that you know during migration season and 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 in some ways all year round, at night there are there are birds moving overhead, migrating, and they are drawn to our artificial lights. Uh, they're drawn off course. They're drawn into urban areas. A lot of the birds that end up flying into windows during the day were drawn into that area at night by our bright lights. We're having a real problem with insects being sucked out of the ecosystem because they're drawn to artificial light at night. Just kind of from the lowest, uh, the base of the food chain, insects up to the top of the food chain. We're seeing, we're, everywhere we look, we're seeing impact of artificial lights on different species. Yeah, I think the most visceral example that I've seen, I think it was a Planet Earth, the documentary, one of them <clears throat> about sea turtles. When they hatch, they use the moon or the stars to like figure out where to go, right, back to the ocean. But with artificial light, like they're heading towards like busy streets and they're getting run over. That was probably the most visceral example I've seen of that. 
It's a really dramatic example. You know, these these sea turtles that have evolved for over hundreds of millions of years to come onto shore, lay their eggs when the when the eggs hatch, the hatchlings come up onto the beach and they have evolved to scurry toward the brightest light on the horizon, which is, as you say, has been the moonlight or the stars on the ocean, which is obviously the way they're supposed to go. Now the brightest light on the horizon is the condominium behind them or the hotel or the streetlight. And so they come up and they head that way and they go into the street, they're run over, they die of dehydration, they're picked off by predators. It's a real problem. And the good news is that a lot of places recognize this and people are, you know, watching the beaches so that when the when the hatchlings come up, they help them to the ocean and that kind of thing. But but we lose a lot of, you know, sea turtles are endangered anyway, and we lose a, a lot of them just from this light pollution. And you talk about bats. They're often feared because they're associated with the nighttime, right? But they play a vital role in our ecosystem. Like They eat mosquitoes, they eat bugs. And if we don't have bats, you're going to have this problem with uh, infestations of insects. Right, exactly. Bats are such a great example of everything we're talking about here because they are associated with night. And a lot of people are afraid of them for really no, I shouldn't say no reason, but any danger that a bat might carry from rabies is the prime example, is way overblown. And when you compare it to the benefits that they bring to humanity, we really ought to be loving bats and and praising bats and thinking they are as cool as they really are. I mean, there's more than a thousand species of bats. They, When you look at the pictures of them, they're, they're fascinating faces and ears and nose. And then a prime example is uh, the, the bats down in Austin, Texas, who there's a uh, bats who live under the Congress Avenue Bridge who come out and fly into the, it's just this amazing emergence of millions of bats coming out and they fly into the agriculture or fields around the city and eat pests and they save the farmers, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Huge value, right? Huge value. It's something we ought to treasure uh, and yet we're afraid of them. So it's, it's this, this odd feeling that we have for something that is actually helping us. So uh, besides the the harm on our ecosystems, uh, you researched that this exposure to light 24-7 might actually have some health detriments to humans as well. So what are some of those detriments? Yeah, there, there are primarily three different areas. And the first is that all this exposure to artificial light is, night, is contributing to sleep disorders. So it's impacting people's ability to sleep, their length of sleep. Sleep docs have a a term they use, which is short sleep and long light. So because we're exposed to so much light way into the night, we end up having these short periods of sleep. And what I was told, which is really compelling, is that short sleep or a lack of sleep, sleep disorders are tied to every major disease that we're wrestling with these days. So obesity, cancer, diabetes, depression, you know, you name it, a lack of sleep seems to have a real detrimental effect. The other second area is that exposure to artificial light at night confuses our circadian rhythms, uh, which is these these rhythms that orchestrate our organs, our body's health, essentially. And it was described to me as, uh, if you imagine the organs in your body as an orchestra, each one a different instrument, the circadian rhythm is the conductor, keeps the orchestra together. And if you confuse that conductor, it follows that the the rest of the orchestra is going to be confused. And people think, oh, it's no big deal. You know, I can I can pull an all nighter, or I can fly to Europe, and I can I can function. 
But if you do it night after night after night, or a few nights here and a few nights there, it leads to real serious issues such that the World Health Organization now lists working the night shift as a probable carcinogen. And the American Medical Association is really concerned about exposure to especially blue light at nights. And the third, the third area that people are really nervous about is that it, it, it seems like, so we have a, a hormone called melatonin. A lot of people have heard about that. It's only produced in the dark. So if you're sleeping with the lights on, you're not producing melatonin. If you get up at night and you go to the bathroom and turn on the light, the production of melatonin in your body stops. And what they've found is a lack of melatonin in our bloodstream is linked to an increased risk for breast and prostate cancer. So this gets people's attention. And all these things together, you know, what I say to people is like every other creature on earth, we evolve with bright days and dark nights. You need darkness for, for health. And if you're not already sleeping in the dark, start tonight. Yeah, that uh, section about the increased rates of cancer amongst uh, nurses who work the night shift really blew my mind. I had no, I mean, I think we all understand if you work the night shift, you're probably going to be tired and fatigued and that has lots of problems. But the idea that it can cause cancer really sounded some alarms in me. Yeah, it does for a lot of people. I mean, cancer gets our attention and, you know, we should be careful to say, you know, we, we can't say if you see a bright light at night, you're going to get cancer. Nobody's really saying that, but it does, it seems to increase the risk for cancer. And when there's, there's a, you know, a real compelling uh, argument that I detail in the book about the, the link to breast cancer in women from exposure to light at nights. And as, as the researcher said to me, you know, even if it's only 10 or 15 or 20 percent of breast cancer cases, that is still a lot of people. And with all these things that we're talking about, you know, when it comes to to exposure at light at night, so much of this exposure could be reduced, you know, so it's, it's so often it's unnecessary exposure with high costs. So, okay, let's talk about that then. How can we be more thoughtful about lighting at nighttime? Because obviously it's not possible just to eliminate all light at nighttime. What can we do to light the skies or light our way without trying, I guess, mitigating some of the downsides of too much light? Yeah, for sure. There's a lot we can do. And I'll just, you know, reiterate the idea too, that the problem isn't artificial light. It's how we use it, basically. So we're going to have artificial light. Increasingly, we're going to have electronic light. So light emitting diodes, LEDs are kind of taking over the, the world. And, and that's good in a lot of ways. They, they can do a lot of, a lot of wonderful things. So we're going to have light. How do we use it? Let's use it thoughtfully and responsibly and uh, as good neighbors. Let's not use more than we need. For example, in your own house, turn off your lights at night. And as I was just saying, sleep in the dark. Try not to be staring into your screens before you go to bed. The blue light from your screens seem to have a real detrimental effect. In our communities, we can have uh, what are called light ordinances, which are basically just rules that dictate how what kind of light we'll have and how we'll use it. And again, the, the biggest thing in our communities and, and all over is if we're going to have light, let's direct it downward. Let's have what we, we, we call it shielded. Let's have it downward so it lights the street, it lights the sidewalk, but it doesn't shine up into the sky. It doesn't shine into people's eyes. So those are kind of the, the basic ways, I guess I would say, is to, in your own house, be in the dark, turn off your, your house lights. In your communities, 
make sure that your light is focused downward, that we're not using more light than we need. And as a society then, to start realizing that because some light help us, helps us be safe, more light doesn't automatically make us safer. Are there any cities who are sort of on the forefront of reducing light pollution or being smart, smarter about lighting? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of really cool work that's being done uh, with lighting around the world. Here in the States, two prime examples are in Arizona, Flagstaff and Tucson. Flagstaff is remarkable if, if you go there. And some, a lot of this is dictated by the, uh, the uh, astronomical observatories that have been there. But in Flagstaff and, and in Tucson, you will see exactly what I'm talking about, which is that the lights are focused down. Sometimes the lights are, are more, uh, the colors of the light are more amber colors rather than this bright blue white light. And so that's pretty remarkable to see. If, if you go to a, you know, a gas station, for example, which are in most of the country, one of the prime examples of light pollution where gas stations and parking lots are lit 10 times as brightly as they were only 20 years ago. So we've really ramped up the lighting in gas stations. If you go to a gas station in, in Flagstaff or Tucson, it's much dimmer. And at first you're like, wow, it's super dim. And then as you're there, you just think, well, I have all the light I need. And there's, it's not like these places are overrun by, by thieves and criminals. Everything's fine. There's just less light. Some of the cities in Europe, like Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Oslo, are really doing amazing things with their lighting, lowering the levels of light, putting lights actually in the street rather than shining in your eyes. So there's a lot of cool stuff we could do with lighting that we're not doing. And I think that goes along with kind of rethinking the way that we use light at night. Yeah. And also, I guess another recommendation would be for folks to get out to a place where they they can experience true darkness. Yeah, for sure. Because if you're I like to say, you know, if you're younger than about 40 in the U.S., chances are you've grown up swamped with artificial light. Like you don't know what it really is to live without artificial light. So having that firsthand experience of getting out somewhere where you can see what a real sky looks like. Uh, and then, you know, maybe you've heard me talk or you or somebody has pointed this out to you, kind of looking around at the lights around you and thinking, well, this is kind of dumb, like, why do we need lights that are going up into the sky? It's not helping anybody. It's not making anybody any safer. We can have lighting. Let's just focus it down. Yeah. You know, it inspired me. There's a, I want to get out to, I live in Oklahoma and out in the panhandle, there's a state park called Black Mesa, which I don't think there's anything, there's no light around there. I want to get out there because I don't, I, I know I've seen the Milky Way once, but it's been a long, long time and I want to see that again. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would, you know, just to touch back on where we were a little bit earlier, you know, night doesn't have to be a level one on that portal scale to be pretty amazing. Um, you know, you can have what would rank maybe a two or a three or a four on that scale, and you can still be awed by being out at night. The, the problem is that most of us, honestly, are way up in the seven, eight, nine range most of the time, you know, so we're just really not, we look up and we see 25 stars when really we, we ought to be able to look up and see 2,500 stars. That's the difference that most people don't, don't realize. So Paul, you've got a new book out and I haven't had a chance to read it, but it looks fascinating. Cause it's the same thing. I love how you take these like sort of obscure ideas, things we take for granted and try to flesh things out. It's about dirt. What, what caused you to explore, go from the night sky to exploring the ground beneath us? Mm. You know, it, it's a, 
uh, it's an entirely different subject in, in a lot of ways, but similar themes, which is to say, I'm really interested in the the costs from our separation from nature and the benefits from being connected to nature and realizing our connection to nature. So, you know, the end of night is about being cut off from darkness because of we're using too much artificial light. And the ground beneath us is, is really about this uh, firsthand experience of natural ground. We are cut off from that as well. We live, this kind of stunned me when I, when I found this out, but we live um, in, in the civilized West 90 to 95% of our time inside or in our cars. And then when we walk outside, we walk on pavement, a lot of us. So we've lost a literal connection with the natural ground and then I started thinking about all the the really vital grounds that we don't have, a lot of us, most of us don't have connection with, especially like the soil that provides our food, the the grounds that give us our, our energy, even the grounds that give us our spirit. And that was one of the great <laughs> things about the book is to, to learn not only about soil and pavement, but also to go to places like Gettysburg and talk about hallowed grounds and to uh, other places talk about sacred ground. What do we mean by those places and why are they important? So it's another, it was a really fun book to write and hopefully takes people uh, in a lot of neat places. Great. Well, Paul, where can people learn more about your work? I have a website I would invite people to. Uh, it is uh, paul-bogard, so P-A-U-L-B-O-G-A-R-D. And um, you can read about the books and find out lots of good stuff. Fantastic. Well, Paul Bogard, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. My guest today was Paul Bogard. He's the author of the book, The End of Night. You can find that on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. He's also got a new book out about the ground beneath us. It's called The Ground Beneath Us. It's about dirt. You can find out more about his work at paul-bogard.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash bogard, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.